Welcome back to Supreme Myths. I am very, very pleased today to have as my guest Mike Dorf, the Robert S. Stevens Professor of Law at Cornell uh, Law School. Mike is a graduate of Harvard College, Harvard Law School. He clerked, as uh, most people know, for Judge Reinhardt and also for Justice Anthony Kennedy. And I do want to mention in this introduction that Mike clerked for Anthony Kennedy during the 1992 term, which the con law people out there will know was maybe Justice Kennedy's coming out party where Casey and Lee versus Weissman were both decided. Mike has written or co-written a ton of books and more articles than anybody could possibly count. He writes a bi-weekly column for uh, Verdict. And of course, he runs Dorf on Law, which I'm happy to say is one of the leading legal blogs in the country since I contribute uh, often to Dorf on Law. Mike, it's really great to have you. Thanks. Well, thanks so much for inviting me, Eric. And it's a real pleasure to be here with you, even if uh, separated by the internet. I am very excited to talk to you about legal realism, which we're going to do. But before we do that, I start off these podcasts uh, usually by asking my guest to give me three myths about something, Supreme Myths podcast, uh, sometimes law, but often not. And Mike, you are a tireless defender of animal rights and, and feel very strongly about it. So I thought we'd start just on, a, on that topic, and then we'll segue to legal realism. But give me three myths uh, about animal rights in this country or in this world, however you want to talk about it. Sure. So um, I'm uh, a vegan. I have been for uh, about 14 years now. Uh, so here are three myths that come up uh, that I, um, I get as either objections or questions from people upon learning uh, about my uh, commitment in this way. So the first is that it's difficult for vegans to get enough protein that one right. needs to eat animal products in order to uh, have sufficient protein. Um, so let me just give you two reasons why that's a myth. Uh, one is we see that some of our close relatives, uh, gorillas, for example, uh, are exclusively vegan, and no one has ever accused a full-grown male gorilla of uh, lacking enough protein. Uh, another is that just in developed countries, if you eat enough calories, you'll get enough protein. Um, so that's the first myth. Um, second myth is that um, it's possible in uh, the modern world to eat ethically by buying uh, so-called humane products like cage-free eggs, grass-fed, free-range uh, milk and uh, animal products. Uh, these are largely marketing uh, tools of the animal exploitation industries that uh, know that people are uh, concerned about the treatment of the animals, and so they have these uh, these terms. Some of them don't mean anything. Some of them that have some technical meaning, like um, uh, cage-free or uh, free-range, it just means they have to have access to open air. So often you have these gigantic sheds with these chickens uh, uh, in which they're sort of packed in as tightly as anywhere else. It's just that the end of the barn is open to the air. Uh, so that's a, a, a second myth. And there's actually a nice website called Humane Myth where you can read about that. 
Um, here's the third one. This is my favorite one. Uh, Hitler was a vegetarian. Uh, <laughs> it's um, it, 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 it's the first time I've ever laughed at anything say, about Hitler other than the producers. Go ahead. <laughs> right. So, uh, but but you sometimes hear this as a, an objection to vegetarianism or veganism. He wasn't. No one claims he was a vegan. He wasn't actually a vegetarian. Although there is some evidence that uh, he did become sort of a vegetarian in the last few years of his life, uh, but also that he was uh, eating sausages. So that's uh, mixed. But the, what's so weird about this as a myth is like, how would that discredit uh, vegetarianism or veganism? I'm sure there were some other things that Hitler did. You know, he breathed air, for example, but the, we don't think that discredits the breathing of air. Uh, and so that's that's one that I just thought I'd throw in there uh, kind of for amusement. OK, those are my three myths. Let's talk about legal realism. Uh, we will. But one pause. I just want to tell you a quick okay. story about animal rights to strong a word. But uh, in the mid-80s, a friend of mine, we graduated law school in 83, and a friend of mine was a plaintiff's lawyer. And he had a case involving Popeye's chicken. And he was an avid eater. We're in the South here. He was an avid eater of Popeye's chicken. And uh, he, he, because of this case that he had, he had to go see the entire operation, basically. From, from, And he was so aghast and so destroyed by what he saw that he basically became a vegan after that. And it, it was really a harrowing experience for him. Uh, and the case did settle eventually for a fair amount of money. Uh, and I thought that was interesting. And um, uh, I can only yeah, imagine. Yeah, I mean, people – the people who typically find it most harrowing are the people who work there. There are, you know, very high rates of uh, domestic violence because people bring home what they're encountering. Right. Uh, suicide. The turnover rate in those uh, industries is very high, and it's often people who are undocumented who work there because it's these are not desirable jobs. Right. Interesting. Okay. All right. That was that was interesting. Now we move on to what I really want to talk to you about, uh, Mike. You've been writing writing and thinking about constitutional law since I don't know. Uh, 1992, at least. Before that, actually, right? Because you worked with Tribe on his book, right? I, I started law school in the fall of 1987. So uh, I, I took con law in the fall of 1988. So let's say then. Okay. Um, and you've written as much as anyone since then on this topic. Uh, and so I wanted to focus our discussion. We could talk about a million things. I wanted to focus our discussion on, on what I think are a lot of myths about legal realism and what legal realism is and what it means. Uh, and, and part of the problem, I, the, part of the reason I think there are a lot of myths about legal realism, and this is actually a blog post I haven't written yet, but I plan to, uh, is, that, is that people our age confuses it with critical legal studies. And I think that's a very big mistake. So th- let me begin with all of this by, do you have a definition of legal realism that you think is an adequate one to, to capture what it means? Uh, I mean, not a stock one, but I think if I were pressed, I would say legal realism is the view that the determinants of judicial decision-making go substantially beyond the formal legal materials that lawyers cite. So not merely the text of the relevant statute or constitutional provision, if there is one, not merely the case law, but additional factors that could be personal to the judge, could be sociological to the uh, class of, of judges and so forth. But that, that's basically what I would say legal realism means. So I think I, 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 I like that. I mean, I, I think I would want to put in there somewhere the idea that we're interested in what really happens, not what the judge says really happens. I'll, I'll return to that in a minute. But I, I want to get back to, I love the way you, you started, because you started off by saying it's a theory of judicial decision making. 
a lot of people think legal realism is a theory of law, and that's wrong. I mean, I don't at all consider myself a philosopher. I mean, I've written, I've read a lot of philosophy. I do not consider myself an expert in philosophy. I do consider myself somewhat of an expert in how judges decide cases. And those are two different things. And that's where we get into critical legal studies. Can you give your kind of two-minute headline story of what critical legal studies was and how maybe it gets in the way of understanding what legal realism is? Because I think there's two different things. Yeah, so uh, critical legal studies was a movement uh, mostly, at least initially, at uh, Harvard and Yale in the late 60s through late 70s, early to mid-80s, depending on how you count. But by the the mid-80s, when I arrived in law school, it was sort of on the wane. Um, It was a reaction against what had been the kind of absorption of legal realism into the mainstream. Um, And so, you know, if the legal realist was mostly uh, concerned with what is not uh, doing the work in uh, judicial decision-making. Critical legal studies was uh, focused on what was doing the work, and the claim was that it was basically politics. Um, It could be class politics. uh, uh, Critical legal studies gives rise to a number of uh, other kinds of critical movements, so critical race, critical uh, uh, feminist studies. Um, and so there, the political angle would be that it's, you know, uh, 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 white supremacy or uh, patriarchy that's providing the material. Um, I think of critical legal studies as a kind of intensification and sort of more radical version of uh, legal realism. Uh, but, you know, you know the, the, what happened was people said, well, we're all legal realists now uh, by about the mid-1950s. And by the time you have people in the legal academy who've gone through the sort of radical period of the 60s, uh, if we're all legal realists, but people are sort of accepting of the status quo, they want to do something beyond that. So that so that's a sort of historical account. I, I have a hard time pinning down, you know, propositions to which uh, the crits were committed that the uh, legal realists weren't or vice versa. Oh, I think I can help you with that. I do. Uh, Sure. So so I think what I face a lot when I present my legal realist theories to other law professors, especially our age, not so much younger generations or even much older generations, uh, is, is, is I'm a nihilist, is that I don't think words have any meaning that I'm kind of a French deconstructionist in some bizarre kind of way. And I think that's a fair critique of critical legal studies. There was a part of that uh, that did say things like words have no meaning, that it's all in the interpreter. Uh, and, that, and that wasn't just true for law. That they, they, they said that was true for literature and poetry and you know, everything else. And that's unequivocally not what legal realism is. Uh, um, and, and, and one quick story about this. Mark Tushnet, who's one of the leading crits, was one of the leading you know, crits of, of his time, um, when I f- my first year teaching law school, or maybe my second, had written an article about, of all things, the Dormant Commerce Clause, <laughs> one of the most, you know, many people think boring topics we discuss in, in con law, though a very important one. And, and Mark wrote a very doctrinal piece where, where he suggested mm-hmm. that we do this, that. Um, and part of it was he wanted more predictability. And I didn't know him very well. I, 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 he's, he's, he, he's a mentor of mine now. But back then, I didn't know him very well. And I called him, 
And I said, I don't understand this piece of yours because you say words have no meaning in like 15 other articles you've written or very little meaning or, you know, anything can be deconstructed. But you're saying these words matter in the world. And I'm, can you please help me with that? He had two answers. The first I didn't like, the second I did. His first answer was, well, my scholarly hat and my doctrinal hat are different and I can wear different hats at the same time. That's one thing. But then he said, and I agree with this, verb, some verbal formulations are harder to overcome than other verbal formulations because law clerks and judges have to work harder to get past them. And, and especially not Supreme Court, but district court judges and court of appeals judges are, work pretty hard, unlike Supreme Court justices. We can revisit that if you want. Um, and setting this word formulation out in the world will make a practical difference if for no other reason that's the case. And I thought that was interesting. Um, I don't think the crits in the 1960s, many of them would have agreed with that. So I think that's one difference. Does that ring true to you? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I, I think that if you were to, you know, line them up, right? So Tushnet, uh, Peller, uh, I'll, I'll give you another example. Duncan Kennedy, uh, from whom I took a class in legal history, I think all of them would have denied that they were nihilists. Um, you know, the, the same the critical legal studies is sort of a, allied with, but not exactly the same as uh, post-structuralism, post-modernism, a variety of other movements in uh, literature, in the humanities, uh, and uh, all of which get accused of being nihilists. And, you know, they sort of try to push back on it. You know, in philosophy, I think about um, the pushback against uh, uh, someone like Rorty from the philosophical establishment. Uh, Rorty's constantly denying that he's a nihilist. His critics say he is a, a, a nihilist. Um, you know, I'm just just one anecdote. So when I took uh, Duncan Kennedy's class, we spent a lot of time parsing opinions and sort of looking for the ideology there. Uh, that to me is, you know, it's a, a particular take on what law is, but it's not a nihilist take. So, so I share the the view of tush, that Tushnet, and I think I think that if you would ask uh, the crits, they would have denied that they were were nihilists, and they would say sort of conventional things that people say in defense of legal realism, like, well, that you know, we're not saying that words have no meaning. We're saying that in these contested cases, it's the politics that's doing the work, or something like that. Yeah, I think I agree with most of that. I, I do think there is one. Well, first of all, what I was saying was I, I've been charged by, I've been charged with being a nihilist, as they were mm -hmm. too. Maybe that's wrong, but but I don't think people charged legal realists of the '30s with being nihilists. So I think that's that's you know one one just reaction to us that people have. Well, I, I'm not so sure. I mean, you know, the the quote, "It's what the judge had for breakfast." View of legal realism is a critique that says, oh, you think it's all, you know, this stuff that has nothing to do with law. I think the people who who parodied legal, realism, legal realists as saying that what the judge had for breakfast is as much of the determinant of the decision as the formal legal materials, those people were making a kind of charge of nihilism against legal realism. Yeah, I think that that's, that's fair. I guess the, the other difference, I think, and I think this is a substantial difference, is that the the, certainly Duncan Kennedy, but I assume almost all of them, 
had a view of society as a whole in terms of power structures and that kind of thing, their critique was not just of courts. It was, or their discussion wasn't just of courts. It was went far beyond courts. I, I don't think the legal realists of the 30s, and certainly not my generation of legal realists, people who think like I do, Chris Brigman of NYU, there are a few others. There aren't many, but there are a few. Um, we, we don't pretend to be making grand societal statements. You know, I, I am talking yeah, I think, about— I think that's fair. I think that's fair. I think it's fair to say that— uh, Critical legal studies focused more on law as an institution overall and not just on judicial decision-making in the way that I think legal realism did mostly. Okay. Um, so let's, let's now bring it down to the ground a little bit more. Um, and, and, and one of the things that I've thought about a lot in my career is constitutional change. And by constitutional change, I mean how do we get from point A from point B when the text of the Constitution doesn't change, assuming no amendments, and we have no new historical revelations that really make make a difference. So um, I'm, I'm thinking about the Espinoza case from this term, where very quickly the Supreme Court held that if a state funds private secular schools, it must also fund private religious schools based on the free exercise clause, or maybe the protection clause, a holding that in 1990 when I was litigating parochial school aid cases for the Department of Justice, would have been unheard of. No one thought that. I mean, it, 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 came, it came out of Trinity Lutheran a few years ago, but this was really the case. Nothing has changed about the Free Exercise Clause or the Establishment Clause or our history or knowledge of those clauses for the court to go from some things can't be given to religious schools to some things have to be given to religious schools. And one more, one more fact about this, then I'll ask your opinion. It was a 5-4 decision. There's no question in my mind that a fifth liberal justice, the court would never reach this decision. So how do, assuming I'm right on both those descriptive accounts, in 1985, 1990, this would never have been a theory that anybody, almost anybody would have bought. And two, one, dif- one justice makes a difference. And of course, we can pick a hundred cases where one justice would make a difference. How do we reconcile that with the idea of law? How do we reconcile that with the idea that legal materials matter when, in fact, it's the, to my view, it's the people that matter? Okay, so let me uh, put this in context. Um, the legal materials matter, matter in the following way, right? So um, let's hypothesize that there is at least one justice who, if given the ability, would say that actually the U.S. government should favor um, Protestant Christianity uh, or Catholicism. They'd have a harder time with Catholicism, even though um, there are more Catholic justices than Protestant judges, uh, simply for historical reasons. But, you know, let's say they say, well, the the um, the government should favor uh, uh, Christianity or or monotheism or some or some uh, religious sectarian view. Uh, I think that part of the reason they don't say that, and I, and I think I think certainly Scalia thought it was permissible to favor monotheistic religion. But part of the reason they don't say that is the text makes it very difficult to say that. So I I do think that there is a constraining effect of the text that we don't realize because we are arguing within the realm of what can be argued. Now, having said that, I don't disagree with you that the 
division here is a function of there being five Republican appointees and four Democratic appointees. Um, there, I, I think the, the, what, what happens in our in our courts is that they are a, in most contexts, a lagging, but in some contexts, a leading indicator of public opinion, broadly speaking, but filtered through our political system. And our political system overrepresents the interests and views of uh, white Christian conservatives, um, not because they've rigged it that way, but just through sort of accidents of history uh, and the Electoral College and the Senate and so forth. And, you know, even though the the sort of very religious conservative view is a minority view within the country, uh, it gets translated through elections and then through appointments into a majority view on the court. But if you take an issue that's sort of less politically divisive, you'll see long-term evolution in a way that roughly tracks uh, the general mood of the public. And at that point, you might say, well, if that's the case, why do we even need a court, which is supposed to be a counter-majoritarian institution? Uh, and the answer is, well, maybe we don't, but you know, the uh, we have a very difficult to amend constitution, and so the way that these long-term evolutionary changes uh, work their way through, right? Instead of just amending the constitution periodically, uh, it has this sort of circuitous path through our our rather imperfect political system. That's a very long answer, um, for which I apologize. I know you wanted to keep this more conversational. Yes, uh, yeah, but, but I, I, it seems to me that you know, it, we, can, we can pick lots of examples where within a, you know, if we look at a sufficiently narrow time horizon, you know, 20 years, 30 years, the court looks out of step with the public and they're just choosing sides. But over the very long run, uh, the court's not going to be that out of step with public opinion, broadly speaking. Uh, and so, you know, that to me, I don't know if you want to call that law, but it's it's not inconsistent with sort of a, 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 a reasonable conception of democracy, except to the extent that our system as a whole is problematic. And I think it is in the ways I referred to, especially the Senate and the Electoral College. Yeah. Um, I have a couple of things I want to push back on on that. And you began that answer about the text, and I, 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 it's hard. It's hard for us to find things we disagree on. So I may be pushing a little bit. Just, um, but I think I think I think the text is functionally irrelevant, and you think the text is mostly irrelevant, but sometimes is. Is that a fair? Is that a fair? No, I, I think it's very, very often relevant, but the way in which it's relevant is in creating a selection bias for the areas in which uh, it's indeterminate, right? On, um, so so the, the, the text and other factors are constraining what gets contested. But within the area of contestation, it's almost by definition, the stuff that's contested, the text isn't going to constrain, because if it did, then it wouldn't be contested. Well, and this is where I come closest to the crits. This, the, I, I don't agree with you. I do not agree with that answer. And this is where I, be, I get close mm -hmm. to the crits. And I know Mark Tushner was very, um, I think he, he made this case very persuasively back in the 70s. The text 
only matters as long as the culture thinks that text matters. I don't care how clear it is. I don't care how clear the text is. So people always say, well, the president has to be 35. And I think in the Constitution, that's true. And I think Mark once dropped a footnote somewhere saying, well, not necessarily. We, we could take 35 as a placeholder for maturity if enough people felt that way. And I have a lot of proof of that, a, a lot of it, because, in, um, because, for example, the text only says that the First Amendment applies to the Congress. And even if we get to states via incorporation, I can live with that. But how we get to the president from Congress strikes Ninth, me as Ninth something— Amendment. Say again? Ninth Amendment. Okay, but there are a lot of people yeah. not willing to buy your Ninth Amendment argument who would still say the First Amendment applies to the president. So I don't um, – but, but there, there are countless I, – I, I, Mike, I do think there are countless – other examples. There is no dormant commerce clause. You know, we can make one up various ways, but it doesn't exist in the Constitution. Um, we can go on and on on this, but, but here's my point. We have enough clear countertextual evidence that text doesn't matter that I don't, I, I mean, from state sovereign immunity to anti-commandeering to all kinds of things the justices do, that I, I actually think Mark was right. I don't, I don't think it's that different from what you were saying. If, in fact, a 29-year-old messiah came to us, the political messiah, who could save us from the horrific times that we're in, and he did it, and he, he started that way when he was 20, <laughs> and over 10 years, there was a huge consensus that this person should be president, and this 29-year-old ran for president. A court adopting the argument that 35 is a placeholder for maturity is no dumber than equal state sovereignty was in Shelby County versus Holden. So I do think it's mostly, I do, because th- equal state sovereignty is completely and totally unjustifiable on every level. I don't even want to debate that. So, under, under the 15th Amendment. So, I think it is more what the culture will accept than what the text says. And, and if the stakes are big enough. Yeah. So let me. So, so I I partly agree, but I I think I have some subtle differences here. So one is, um, I would distinguish between the court making stuff up based on very vague or in some cases non-existent texts like structural inference versus defying a clear text or using a clear text to do something that we all know is just sort of they're doing it because there's a pragmatic interest here. So some people uh, think about legal tender that way, right? Yeah. That is the the fact that we have money not backed by gold or silver uh, is just a kind of bow to necessity and it seems to contradict the text. So there are a lot. I because the Constitution only talks about coin. We should tell the audience. Because, because yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the, the – um, you know, th- there are many examples, um, but so I want to I want to sort of try to understand what it exactly the claim is that you're making. Is it a claim? I, I don't think you're making a claim that these texts don't actually have determinate meanings. Uh, instead, you're saying that th- that sometimes they do have determinate meanings, but even when they do have determinate meanings, courts for pragmatic and social and other reasons sometimes will try to work their way around those determinate meanings. Uh, and, and I think that's true, but I think, and this goes back to something that Mark said that you, you quoted a little earlier, right? The, the more determinate the meaning and the more contrary the place the court wants to go to to that determinate 
meaning, the harder it's going to have to push. Uh, and that means that the text is doing some work. Let me just say one other thing, um, which is, you know, there's, uh, there's a view of language that a small number of people hold that the vast majority of sort of people who think about these things don't hold and that I don't hold, which says that, like, texts have meaning inherently, right? Language is, you know, a social practice. And so, of course, language is going to take its meaning from social practices. So when we so when we say that, well, if everybody decided, you know, that we want to do this, even though the text says otherwise, you want to be clear that what you're saying is like that's only significant if uh, we're talking about people reaching a, a conclusion about what they want the law to be without having you know semantic drift, having without there being a change in our understanding of the word, which also happens. Right, so I, th I, just, I, I think that we're on the same page here, but, but I want to distinguish those two phenomena because if the position is simply that language doesn't exist in a, in a social vacuum, then that's an almost trivial point. And I don't think that was the point you were making. No, it's not. And I do think this is the problem when two like-minded people talk to each other. I, I think we would get stronger pushback from formalists on some of the points we're making that we both kind of accept intuitively. But, you know, I did have Jonathan Adler on, so I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to cover all my bases here. Um, I, well, I want to go back to something else you said about about why the court does what it does. Uh, and you suggested that most of the time the court follows public opinion in, in, in a very broad kind of way. Sometimes it leads. It rarely gets too far afield. Barry Friedman wrote a great book on that uh, that, that I think is mm -hmm. right. And, 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 but I think I, I think I agree with you for different reasons, though, because you started that answer by saying the text confines the court in some type of way, maybe minuscule, but some type of way. I don't think so. I think it goes back to Hamilton. I think the court has no purse and no sword. If these five justices today had a purse, meaning, a, meaning their own money, which they don't have, or a sword, meaning an army, which they don't have, I think they, well, let me put it this way. I see no scenario where Justice Roberts votes the way he did in June Medical um, if he had either purse or sword. I do think, and that's just a shorthand way of saying the court, there is a, con people accuse me all the time of saying the court, there's no constraint on the court. That's not what I say. It's not what I've said in any book I've ever written or my, any article. There is a constraint. It's a real one, what they can get away with. And that is a real constraint because uh, if they go too far, they will be slapped down eventually. I mean, I think, and, and then they have no recourse. So I don't think it's the text. I think it's the idea that they, they really can't do what they want to do if it gets too far away from what the people want them to do. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, here's a way to put it. So why did Al Gore accept the result in Bush v. Gore, right? I wish I knew. Um, <laughs> right? oh, I mean, the you know, so there are a few possibilities, right? Um, but it, it's not that, uh, he was afraid that the court was going to send the marshals to arrest him if he defied their order, right? It had to do with, um, you know, at some level him wanting to avoid, uh, bloodshed in the streets, um, at another level that although the court lacks purse or sword, it does have, a kind of legitimacy, even when people strongly disagree with it. Uh, and I take it part of what you're saying might be that 
if the court started acting in really, really counter-majoritarian ways that were broadly unpopular, it would lose that legitimacy, and then people would stop uh, doing things that it wants them to do, even when it can't force them to do so. Yes. That a, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah I, I think I, I, yeah. I broadly speaking agree with that. But that's but that's about why the court's decisions are accepted, why it makes the decisions it does. You know, that that could be I, I think we want to avoid mono uh, causal explanations. It could be that that's a big constraint, but there's also some constraining force from. Uh, legal texts. And, you know, we might want to distinguish between constitutional text, which is often uh, very indeterminate with respect to the cases the court decides, and statutory text, which is less indeterminate because uh, statutes are much more detailed. It's not just text, though. It's also text and what we know about the history behind the text and, and prior cases as well. So I guess I am going to talk about Shelby County, which I hate talking about, but I guess I am going to talk about it. So Of course, I was a core legal realist long before Shelby County. But I do wonder what you think, how you sleep at night about the Supreme Court when we when we have a decision. Because I think this is kind of rare that both. So Shelby County, of course, is there's some non lawyers, I hope, listening or watching. Um, Shelby County was the case that struck down a key provision of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, which let covered states get out of the requirement to send their voting changes to either the Department of Justice or to a three-person court in D.C. And it was a really important part of the civil rights movement. Everybody's seen Selma or whatever movies. Uh, You know, Martin Luther King and Lyndon Johnson got the Voting Rights Act passed and all that. And it was upheld by the court three times prior to Shelby County. And then in Shelby County... Five justices, all Republicans, struck it down partly on the basis of this principle called equal state sovereignty, partly on that basis. And actually, without that principle, I think Justice Roberts can't write it the way he did. But I don't want to get into that right now because that's complicated. But he did announce that principle. And what he said was when Congress under the 15th Amendment treats one state differently than another, it has to have a strong reason for doing so. Kind of an equal protection clause for states. There is no equal protection clause for states in the text of the Constitution. In 1965, in Katzenbach versus Morgan, the Supreme Court emphatically rejected the idea that there is that limitation on Congress's Reconstruction Act powers. Um, And uh, so he – and he didn't overrule that case. So he, in bad faith, avoided a binding precedent. And most of all – this is why I raised the point – we all know that there's no chance the history behind the 15th Amendment was that Congress couldn't treat different states differently. The whole point of the Reconstruction Amendments was to bring the South back in and make them live up to promises they didn't want to believe in. So here's my question. Not only is that case incredibly important on the ground, in terms of what it did, Texas and North Carolina and Alabama and Mississippi all enacted, you know, kind of voter suppression things immediately after Shelby County. It also is as anti-legal in opinion as there's ever been in my study of constitutional law. Because no one can say with a straight face that a principle of equal state sovereignty exists under the 15th Amendment. If they can do that, what can't they do? As a matter of kill, as a matter, as a matter of, of just ignoring, distorting, in bad faith. There's a whole ellipsis part of this that Justice Roberts did in bad faith. I've written about in your blog. If they can't, if they can do that, what can't they do? 
All right. Um, I, I want to agree with some of that, but uh, at least point to some issues that I think are, are raised. So okay. first, um, I share your disdain for the bottom line in the opinion, uh, mostly because I think the core argument that the court made is simply mistaken. Right? The core argument was that this coverage formula was outdated because it hadn't been updated in uh, half a century, uh, and it was working. You no longer needed it because you had uh, rates of African-American voting in the covered jurisdictions that were comparable to or in some places even exceeded the rates of white voting. Uh, and as Justice Ginsburg points out in dissent, yeah, that's because the, the act was working and, you know, saying you don't need it is like uh, throwing away your umbrella because you're not getting wet in the rain because the umbrella is protecting you. Right? So, <laughs> right. so on that sort of core point, I think the, the, the opinion is, is just uh, a little bit obtuse. Um, I also agree that as a matter of judicial craft, it's dishonest, right? That is to say, this principle of equal sovereignty of the states uh, is taken from a different principle, which is the so-called equal footing doctrine that right. says that states, uh, when they, new states have to be admitted on an equal footing with existing states. Okay. Having said all of that, I think that uh, although the equal sovereignty of the states doctrine is not in the text of the Constitution, um, that is not, to my mind, a sufficient reason to think it's wrong. It might be wrong, um, but it, it's, the reason it's wrong is not because it's not articulated in so many words uh, in, in the text of the Constitution. The text of the Constitution doesn't say that in cases of conflict, a later in time statute prevails over an earlier in time statute, but we infer that because that's just a sort of natural way for a uh, uh, de democracy to operate. There are all sorts of principles like that that are reasonable inferences. Now, is equal sovereignty of the states a reasonable inference? Um, I, I happen to think not because I think it's so easy to evade, but there are some things about it that are attractive. You know, suppose that uh, the Trump administration were to, like, to announce, I mean, they practically do this, that is, they, they say the quiet parts all the time, but suppose they were actually to announce we are going to be cutting uh, the postal post office in heavily democratic areas in uh, swing states. Uh, we're not doing it in any other states, but in heavily democratic areas in swing states, we are cutting the post office. Why? Because we want the Democrats to lose the upcoming election. Uh, it seems to me that if they're only doing it in states where they, you know, that have that those characteristics. Uh, if one way to get at, you know, that say that's unconstitutional is to invoke the equal sovereignty of the states doctrine, that's a pretty good argument for equal sovereignty of the states. So again, the the made upness of it is a problem, but it's not by itself a sufficient reason to be against it. That's my view. No, well, well, I think what I was trying to say was, well, first of all, the Trump administration did that. That would right. likely, as they, as they are doing it, if somebody challenged it, yeah. um, there are equal protection issues. There are, limit, there are limitations in the – I mean, of course, this goes back to our earlier conversation. There is no equal protection limitation on the state, on the federal government. The court has made that up. But leaving that aside, assuming we accept an equal protection limitation on the federal government or a First Amendment limitation on the federal government, I think that kind of policy could run afoul – of a limitation like that. But that isn't, that isn't, that's not my main point there, Mike. My main point is, 
Shelby Count, and, and so my 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 friend. Um, Tom Colby at George Washington, who has written some of the best originalist work, anti-originalist work of anyone in the country. I cite him all over my book. He actually wrote an article defending equal state sovereignty as a plausible structural limit, but not, emphatically not, on Congress's Reconstruction Amendment's powers. And that's the difference. The difference is Shelby County was a case involving Congress's 15th Amendment power. I don't think you can get from the 15th Amendment word appropriate, Congress has the power to make all laws appropriate, to equal state sovereignty. And, he, and, he, and even he didn't try in his article. He, he you know, cabined that issue. So could there be a situation where equal state sovereignty as a non-textual limitation on the federal government makes sense? Sure. Congress's powers under the 15th Amendment is not one of those times. Um, in my opinion, and I don't know how any historian could disagree with. I mean, you don't disagree with that, do you? I don't. I don't disagree as a historical matter, but of course, neither you nor I thinks that the original understanding of any particular provision is the whole of its meaning. Right. And so, I, you know, I don't want to foreclose the possibility that at some future point, the Trump administration might invoke its power under the 15th Amendment as delegated by Congress uh, as the pretext to do something that is objectionable on various grounds, including a violation of the state's equal sovereignty. After all, I mean, think of the, you know, the, the ridiculous idea, which, you know, Leah Littman has turned into a meme about how they said that they were going to ask the citizenship question on the census, quote, to enforce the Voting Rights Act. Right. So, um, you know, you could imagine that they're invoking the 15th Amendment power of Congress to do something horrible. And then you might want to say that equal sovereignty or something else is a limitation on that. So I, I want to respond to that in kind of a messy way. And then we're running out of time and then ask you one final question. But it'll, but it'll take a few minutes to discuss my final question, I think. On that point, though, so the Trump administration. Let's hope and pray that it's a one-term thing. But, let, but, but whether it's one or two terms, I, I think we can agree that as, although many of us, you know, despised a lot of what, when, on the left, despised what George uh, uh, W. Bush did, it wasn't a country-changing dynamic type of thing. I mean, he, he, was, he was a president within the realm of presidents. Trump is not. We agree on that, mm -hmm. I think. And I think because the court's powers duties, responsibilities, and actions reflect what's happening out in the real world, it might be that a Trump administration could push the court to f do things it wouldn't do when we're talking about what I call a bet your country type of president. But that, again, that's not text. That's not history. That's not traditional legal materials. That is the court reacting to a social phenomenon in a way that we would understand or maybe not. But again, it's not about text history in prior cases. It's about what's happening on the ground in the real world. And, and I think if equal state sovereignty would become a thing that way, that wouldn't hurt any of my arguments. I think it would just reinforce my arguments that, that the, the legal materials themselves don't matter. It's other things that really matter. You can respond to that if you want quickly. And then, um, Yeah, I mean... I, I guess I want to push back a little bit on the idea that law consists of those materials, right? That is, why isn't law, which itself, of course, is a social phenomenon, a product of uh, 
text, prior cases, history, and the sort of sensitive application of all of those materials to the facts on the ground, right? It's that, it's that last category that you want to exclude from law that I tend to think of as, yeah, that's part of law, though it's, it's not uh, sharply distinguishable from the exercise of political or other judgment. Uh, that's interesting. Now we're going to talk more, so we're going to go longer. That, that's interesting, okay. if you have time, because on on Wednesday, this is being shown after Wednesday. So on Wednesday, on your blog, I wrote a piece about Justice Souter's famous Harvard speech, where he kind of defends legal realism. And, and Justice Souter emphatically agrees with what you just said. I mean, Justice Souter, the whole point of that, he wasn't saying text and history are irrelevant or anything like that. I don't think he would ever have said that. What he did say is law consists of much more than that including things you just talked about. And in most hard cases, those other things have to come into play. There's no other way. Um, so I think he would agree with you. I think I would push back to both of you and just say it's one thing, and this is going to lead me to my last question. It's a great segue. It's one thing to say, of course, we understand judges are human beings and are going to be impacted by the world around them, and that comes into play in addition to text history and prior cases. That's not my view. That's my view of lower courts, by the way. It's exactly my view of lower court. That is not mm-hmm. my view of the Supreme Court of the United States. I think the Supreme Court is sui generis, I think, of any institution in the world. I think there are court of appeals and district courts in this country that are like other courts in other countries. But there are no Supreme Courts in other countries like ours, not the constitutional courts of Europe, none of those. And part of the reason is giving human beings life tenure and unreviewable power is going to change everything. And we don't have to get that right now, but it does lead me to my next question. So your friend, Neil Siegel, no relation to me, um, and you, you, you and Neil have written together, I think, a few times. Um, and I have all mm-hmm. the respect in the world for Neil, which is why I'm going to tell this story and then ask you a question. So uh, my first book, Supreme Myths, and you know the story, but I want to tell other people, came out in 2012. Somewhere in 2010 and a half, I was with Neil in a pool at a conference, and we had a couple drinks. And I was telling him about my new book that I was working on. And I gave him my descriptive account, which is the court's not a court because it doesn't take prior law seriously enough to justify the label court because we do expect judges to take prior law minimally seriously. And whereas lower court judges do that, the Supreme Court does not. Um, and, and I went on and on. and won't bore everybody. Neil listened very patiently and at the end said, well, I'm not going to argue with your descriptive account. I could, but I'm not going to do that. I have another question for you. If everything you said is true, why in the world do you want to tell the American people that? Because once the, if, if we agreed with you, then what's the point of having a Supreme Court? How could we justify it? These are unelected, life-tenured people. Uh, they have to be doing something different. Otherwise, there's no good rationalization for that. So even if I agreed with you, I'd say don't, he didn't say don't write your book, but I would say I don't think, it, I think it's a dangerous proposition to put out there. Not that anybody in 2012 was listening to me. Different conversation. Um, and I said to Neil, and I, and I, I kind of was shocked, and, and I kind of ducked my head in the water, came back up and said, are you crazy? If, if my descriptive account is accurate, why in the world wouldn't we as law professors tell the American people that? Like what? I can't understand what you're even saying about this, and we disagreed about that friendly and then moved on. Mike, you're not, you're not quite the legal realist that I am, but you're 90% there. Is that fair? 80% there? Something like that? Yeah, I mean, I also draw less of a distinction between the Supreme Court and the lower courts than you do, although I do agree that not being subject to review makes them 
different uh, qualitatively, not just quantitatively. Do you but agree sure. with okay. Neil that that we should that 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 if my descriptive account is accurate, which I think he would say reasonable people could disagree about, so it's not totally off the wall. Even if it is accurate, we shouldn't expose that. Do you agree with that? Uh, I don't agree with it, but I don't think it's crazy. And so let me give two two precedents for Neil's view. <laughs> One, of course, is Plato's Republic, right? This is the yeah. the origin of the phrase, the noble lie, right? In Plato's Republic, of course, it's used to uh, justify uh, status hierarchy, including slavery, right? You want, you want people to accept their place in the society, so you tell them this noble lie about how uh, they were formed in the earth from different materials and so forth. And so that's, you know, th- that's not a very good argument for it, but the, but the notion of the noble lie is quite familiar. Uh, there was a scholarly exchange on just this subject, uh, I believe it was like in the late 80s, could have been early 90s, uh, between David Shapiro, uh, who is a Harvard law professor and my civil procedure teacher, who wrote a very influential uh, article in defense of judicial candor, which seemed uh, he thought was almost like, you know, defending a truism, like why, of course, judges should be candid. Uh, And he sort of raised some issues why they oughtn't to be. And then there was a response along the lines uh, that uh, that Neil gave you by Scott Altman, who's a Professor at uh, USC, uh, which was in Michigan. That, it was in you know, Michigan. I remember. Yeah. So, so Scott's response was not, "We don't want to uh, hoodwink the public." Uh, right. It's not that we want, want to con- keep the myth alive for the for the the dupes. It was rather that there's constraint on the judges themselves from believing themselves to be constrained. Um, and, and that, I think, is actually true. Uh, so let me tell we, you began this uh, episode by asking for uh, to me to talk a little bit about my interest in animals. So I'm going to tell you a, a very a heartbreaking story about uh, uh, captive elephants. So you may have sometimes seen in zoos or circuses that an elephant will be chained to something or other uh, by what looks like a fairly weak rope or chain and elephants are remarkably strong animals they could easily break that but they don't because the chain or rope is attached for the first time when they're babies and as babies it's strong enough to constrain them and so they strain against it a few times and eventually they give up and they believe themselves constrained so that when they grow up and they have much greater power they no longer attempt to break the bond because they believe themselves incapable of breaking it, and therefore the belief itself has constraining force. I think that's what Altman was saying. I think that is, at least if it's a real psychological phenomenon, and I think it is, I think that is an argument for avoiding uh, making this point. But I don't think that the sort of more uh, platonic view that says we need to dupe the public is especially persuasive. I need to, I, that's, I, I'm going to hesitate to respond to that because I want to think more about it. Um, I, I do want this, – this may be sideways to the issue, but I think it's a good way to end this probably. I mean I do get all the time from people, we want judges to feel like they have to follow legal materials whether they actually follow them or not. And then I usually respond, but they're government officials with coercive power and they should be as transparent as they want to be. We're both parents. Um, you have two daughters, right? And I, I have three. Yes. Um, 
And I often define, I often talk about this in the context of, of people who say, Eric, the way you're describing judges is not how they think they're acting, that, the, that you are describing them in a way the internal perspective, that's not what they think they're doing. And you could put them in a lie detector, and they would say that you know, Scalia, I am, Scalia and Thomas both, I am sure in their hearts, think they're originalists. Neither one is, and I won't go into that right now, but they both think so. Um, and I guess, Mike, I, I, I think of parenting, and I think when I have a hard parenting decision, I mean, my wife and I have hard parenting decisions, and we have to really think about it. Um, uh, we try to make the best decision we can. We try to maybe study it if we have to, whatever it is. But I know, I don't know everything that is at work inside of me that makes me reach that decision. How I was parented, parented, maybe when before I can even remember life, whatever, you know, all kinds of factors come into play that I'm not aware of. I think the same thing is unequivocally true of judges in hard cases. And so, do you, well, I mean, you stop there real quick. Do you disagree with that comparison? I think it's a good comparison. Uh, I don't disagree. I think it applies to obviously all sorts of domains of of right. uh, human activity. Sure. So I do think, in response to your and Scott Altman's point, I, uh, I, that article I read and studied, actually, uh, back in the early 90s, um, I do think my response is we want to get to a world where judges are much more um, introspective than they are, <laughs> especially Supreme Court judges. So I'm willing to err on the side of them understanding they have this power and really being self-conscious about how they're exercising it. And I'm not worried about what you and Neil, that, that, that this false constraint, I think we're so far away from that world when it comes to the Supreme Court, not necessarily lower court judges, that I, um, I, I think they'd be wise, I think they'd be wise to read what I say about them, not just me, but hardcore legal realists. You can have the last word on that. Okay, last word, I'll invoke some uh, social science to push back against that a little bit. So we know that human beings are subject to all sorts of cognitive biases. Uh, There's a famous case of a study done um, middle of the 20th century, uh, which was reported in an article called They Saw a Game. And what they did was they took a collection of Princeton undergraduates and Dartmouth undergraduates and they showed them the same football game, uh, and they told them that uh, they wanted them to identify uh, plays where the referee had made the wrong call. And not surprisingly, the Princeton students thought that there had been a whole bunch of bad calls made against Princeton and and virtually none in Princeton's favor, and the Dartmouth uh, students vice versa. Okay, Uh, this phenomenon is been widely reproduced, but so has the following phenomenon. You tell people about this kind of a bias. You explain to them how it works, and then you give them, then you run the experiment, and what you find is it has either no effect or the confirmation bias is even stronger. That is, knowing that it exists doesn't seem to have any uh, dampening impact. It might only strengthen it because they think, well, other people are subject to this but I'm not. And so uh, I'm not so sure that, so, so it might be that, that, you know, Altman and Siegel and I are, are, are worried about something that's not a real thing, um, and, but it also might be the case that uh, you're telling people isn't going to have the effect that you think it is. 
I think that's fascinating. I wish I had time to talk to you about steroids in sports, which raises the same issue, I think, but I don't. Uh, Mike, this was great. Thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Eric. It's really great. And I look forward to uh, seeing your piece tomorrow. And I guess this will be yesterday when people hear this. Something like that. I've, I've given up trying to figure all that out. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Take care now. All right. Okay. You too. Bye-bye. Okay.